the governor makes big cuts to South Florida programs. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Ron DeSantis cut more than $3 billion from this year's record high budget. And in that money are tens of millions of dollars in cuts to programs in South Florida. We're going to go to Tallahassee to learn more about those cuts and how they could impact you. Also, South Florida has a lot of radio stations that have programs in Spanish and Creole, but one station in Homestead took it a step further and is using indigenous languages from Mexico and Central America. We'll tell you more about Radio Poder. And finally, it's the return of Summer Shorts Festival in Miami. We prepare you for 10-minute plays, one of which was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Florida's growing, and not just by the number of people that have been moving here in recent years. I mean, just look at the recent budget. It's a record $109.9 billion. Look at the items that Governor Ron DeSantis chose to veto, more than $3 billion in projects that lawmakers had approved. But folks in South Florida are looking a little more closely at the millions that he vetoed in regional projects. Joining me now is Miami Herald State reporter Anna Ceballos in the Tallahassee Bureau. Anna, great to have you back. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so the governor signs Florida's largest budget, over $109 billion, vetoes and cuts $3 billion from the, from the budget. I mean, considering the size of the budget, is that really historical? Yeah, I mean, what you're looking at is really the largest spending plan in, its, in the state's history. And even though, you know, we, we did see a big amount of uh, vetoes, like you mentioned, $3 billion, it is a fraction of the whole spending plan that you're looking at. And this uh, budget for the next, next fiscal year that starts July 1st will provide DeSantis with really enough money to deliver record tax breaks and steer millions of dollars into new initiatives aimed at leaving, you know, some of his priorities with elections, with immigration, with education. Um, There's also, you know, a lot of federal money that came in and it leaves the state in a pretty good financial spot. Yeah, the state is, I mean, from everything I've read is it's flush with money. So that's (laughs) a good thing. But did he give any reason why he made such big cuts? Right. So when he announced um, the, the that he was signing the budget, budget and that he was making several billions in cuts, uh, he was largely framing it as a need because of the national economic situation. He was saying that with inflation right now in a potential recession under the Biden administration's leadership, uh, that this was a way for him to be a fiscally respons- uh, responsible governor and making sure that the state is in a really good financial in really good financial shape in case there is a need for any you know filling in any holes financially for whatever emergency happens financially and so right now really we he didn't really need to veto any money but he wanted to do that as a precaution he said and right now as we mentioned earlier you know the state has record reserves that you know DeSantis always brags about not even dipping into those reserves during the pandemic which was a once in a lifetime pandemic so in reality um you know the, the state is in really good financial shape and, he, and DeSantis is saying that he's 
trying to be extra careful just in case there is a war, like the economic situation worsens. So he cuts, it's $30 million from a, a couple dozen projects here in South Florida. Did he veto anything that was proposed by his own party? I mean, yeah. I mean, what did he veto, right? Um, when you talk about $3 billion, that's, you know, uh, you have to keep it in mind too that it's a uh, the majority of lawmakers in the legislature are Republicans. So sometimes their priorities and their budget requests tend to also get in the budget and the larger percentage, right? Because of just sheer numbers. So we did see a lot of uh, Republican uh, budget items be vetoed, including some of the state's top Republican leaders who were standing right next to him on stage when he was signing and vetoing all this money. And how, you know, did, how, example, how, how did they respond though? So, you know, there was, um, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's um, they're playing nice. Uh, they were smiling, clapping. Um, it was, you know, a, an odd uh, juxtaposition to even look at when, you know, they spent a few good days in the legislature during the legislative session trying to come up and negotiate this budget. And then they did pass a balanced budget as they are required to do so every year. And all of a sudden these priorities are gone I remember dirty, right? Like they're they're just no longer there. Right. Let's take a look at what he wanted, what the governor wanted, and what he signed off on. Um, included twelve million dollars to relocate migrants in Florida to other parts of the country. Help me understand here. What's he, what's he planning on doing? Where is he sending these people? So that is a really interesting program that is going to be housed under, it's the first of its kind, and it's going to be housed under the Florida Department of Transportation. And there's really not a lot of guardrails for that program, but DeSantis has been talking about this specific um you know, vision for quite some time, including, you know, going back to when he sent uh, state law enforcement officers to the border in Texas. And it kind of mirrors a program that has already been rolled out in Texas, where, you know, undocumented uh, immigrants who wanted to volunteer and hitch a ride to Washington, D.C., were transported by the state out of the state. And DeSantis is kind of framing it as, you know, we are going to take them out of the state. And, and he always says Delaware as an example, which is the hometown of President Joe Biden. So there's really no details out yet other than the Department of Transportation has $12 million to contract with private companies to be the vehicle for this transportation program. So, so again, the fo- just to make sure, this is focusing on undocumented immigrants. Yes. Okay. So it, it, because it, because I want to make sure I understand here is that usually in the past there was an under there was a relationship between law enforcement and uh, you know uh, uh, immigration federal federal officials on immigration on whether or not we were deporting anybody, but now we're just basically going to throw them out of the state. And send them anywhere else. Correct. That's that's the the okay. what DeSantis is laid out. I see. I got you. Okay. And and it, they haven't said anything about how. They're just we're throwing people on buses. We're throwing people on planes. We're just sending them anywhere else. 
Right. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, he even hinted last week that there's going to be more coming on that program in the coming weeks. Uh, that's something I'm keeping a close eye on. But so far, we, there's they're really not providing many details yet as to exactly what the guidelines will be for who can actually be participating in this program and how it's actually going to be working for for finding who will be allowed to participate. The only thing they're saying is that it will be following federal law. I see. The other one, uh, another well, another one, uh, this is another controversial one, is $10 million to reactivate the Florida State Guard. There was such a thing at one point. He wants to bring it back. Remind us of what this is. Sure. So this was another one of the governor's priorities. Um, he wanted uh, to reinstate the Florida State Guard, which was originated as a World War II era paramilitary force. It was disbanded in like the 1940s. And this is kind of envisioned as a force of about 400 volunteers who the state is now looking for, um, who will be helping the state when there's a natural disaster where there's another state emergency and it would be separate from the florida national guard right that accepts federal dollars and mobilizes on federal missions such as like conflicts in iraq or in afghanistan the state guard will be serving in florida alone and will go without federal help this is what this money is for in the budget talking with anna ceballos reporter for the miami herald in the tallahassee bureau Discussing Governor Ron DeSantis's cuts to the budget last week. Again, a record budget of $109.9 billion. He vetoed $3.1 billion. And again, still, we have the largest budget in state history. And he vetoed over $30 million of projects here in South Florida. And we're going to talk about some of those projects here in just a moment. You can follow Anna's reporting on this on our social media at WLRN Sundial. So uh, let's talk about uh, some of the other stuff, too, that he did accept. He, uh, he's, um, he passed the increase for state workers. Uh, does that include teachers, or is that separate? Yeah, I mean, so the budget, as as we know it right now, right, includes a 5.3 pay raise for all of state workers, and it's a commitment that no state worker will be earning less than $15 an hour. Teachers are, you know, a local negotiation, part of, like, the, you know, they're, they're employees, but they're maybe just separate, uh, but they do include pay raises for them uh, as well. All right. Let's look at some of these cuts. Uh, $30 million here in South Florida, almost three three dozen different projects or so. Uh, and again, you have them listed in your story. Again, we're sharing that on our social media so everyone can go through that list and see all these programs. Um, let's see. There was one for a few million dollars for a new South Miami police station. That sounds like a small satellite station to me. But what what's what can you tell me about that one? Yeah, so that specific one, right, it was uh, as the lawmaker who wanted this funding for for that police station in South Miami, they said that the funds would be serving to construct a new police station with an emergency operations center for the city of South Miami, and that money is gone. Um, So, you know, there's um, there was supposed to be three point five million dollars coming from the state and then one point five million dollars coming from local government. So a big portion of that is now gone because of the governor's decision. All right. Another one was the Miami Springs erosion control and stabilization of drainage. Is that is that just beach erosion or no? What is that? 
Yeah, so that was that's kind of like an interesting one in terms of again the budget request and how you know the, the these lawmakers detail pretty much why this money is needed. And there's been some studies conducted by the city of Miami Springs, and they found that there is a much needed public safety and water quality project that needs to be done by the city. And the city was looking for funds from the state to finish up that program. And you know, it's it's almost a it's an erosion control and stabilization, like, I guess, project that is meant to prevent some trees from collapsing and some road closures because of some damage that there's already there. And that's being caused by erosion. All right. And then uh, just one other one I wanted to point out to is in Little Havana, uh, the Little Havana's Activities and Nutrition Centers. It's a homemaking and companion services for the elderly. Uh, I think it was $1 million going into that. Um, I mean, is that just an activity center or because, again, we're talking about the elderly. What kind of services, you know, would this cut affect? Yeah, so this was a program that was really relying only on these state funds. And now that that the money is gone, so that money was meant to be a providing one on one services to isolated seniors that, um, you know, whether there will be companionship or um, just helping them clean their houses, homemaking, like maybe perhaps cooking for them. Um, so there was uh, the funds would have provided two hours of daily companionship to these seniors who live alone, who are not at a senior center. And five times a week, uh, it would have served 55 elderly per- people uh, for a total of 20,000 units of service a year. Okay. Um, and now that money's gone. So, I mean, again, looking back at these cuts, how do we compare this year to what we've seen DeSantis do in the past? So, I mean, again, what we need to keep in mind is that, you know, this is a largest spending plan. Yes, this, there, these are a lot of, uh, a big, large number for vetoes. But in comparison, we are still in good financial help. Uh, sorry, big financial, good financial standing. Um, and compared to other years, it, it was a little bit shocking to see so many of the top Republican leadership's priorities being vetoed. And, you know, you have to keep in mind that this was a year where DeSantis really got most of, if not everything that he wanted from the lawmakers that he did not return the favor for when it came to budget requests. So and, I think that's kind of the takeaway with the dynamic that we're looking at in Tallahassee. And I'm wondering when you th- when you talk about those, the, the, the proposals he vetoed from his own party, how do you think that plays out politically? So right now, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost a the show of power, you know, I mean, DeSantis right now is, you know, emboldened to act the way that he thinks that he needs to do. He's obviously an ambitious governor. And, you know, it, it, it kind of just shows just the, the, the confidence really that he is feeling right now as to how he is, you know, heading toward re-election, how popular he is with his base, how you know, no one really wants to cross him right now. So he really does feel like, you know, this this kind of shows that he can do pretty much whatever he wants, even with his own party, if he just feels like it's beneficial to what he his goal is, whether it be policy-wise or budget-wise. And soon enough, we're going to roll into that election season because... 
picking a new governor or we're keeping the same governor this year. Anna Ceballos, politics and policy reporter for the Miami Herald at the Tallahassee Bureau. Uh, again, we have a, a link to her story because she's listed, again, all the programs that were cut uh, from here in South Florida, of those $30 million. So check it out on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Anna, always a pleasure. Thank you for the insight. Thank you so much. Have a good Tuesday. All right. Well, still to come, one local radio station is serving people who speak indigenous languages. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Five years ago, a radio station that broadcasts out of South Miami-Dade County was born. It had a different kind of mission beyond just keeping people informed. Radio Poder is reaching people in their native languages, including indigenous languages from Mexico and Central America. Claudia Navarro is the co-executive director of Radio Poder, and she joins us now. Claudia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you know, I want to start by asking you this. What, what are some of your first memories of radio? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I generally have terrible memory, but I think I uh, really started listening to radio um, and public radio at that, um, mostly when I was in high school. But I I think we we all remember uh, you know being in our car um, with our parents listening to you know the music that that they listened to and how you know and when you think about all those years of different things you've listened to how did that influence the work you're doing now I think for me it's uh, essentially it is crucial um, to know that there's a, a community that has easy access to to music that speaks to their culture, their heritage, and information that speaks to the lived issues that they experience every day. Um, and so that's what I experienced growing up listening to radio, uh, community radio, um, WLRN, and you know local music. All right. For those who are unfamiliar, tell me about the mission of Radio Poder. Yeah, so Radio Poder is actually the the local community radio station of WeCount. Uh, WeCount is a community organization. Um, it's member-led, based in South Dade, um, mostly in Homestead and Florida City. And we work with low-wage immigrant workers, uh, day laborers, farm workers, domestic workers in South Dade. And it was founded, as you said, in 2017 by members for members. Why is it important to you? Why did you Why did you want to do this? Well, you know, five years ago, our members came together and said, you know, there has to be a way where we can reach the community broadly, um, like I said, about issues that touch their everyday lives. And so they came together, um, did a capital capital uh, fundraising campaign uh, to fund this low power FM radio station. It's a non-commercial license uh, that uh, has about a 10 mile radius span, um, mostly in the areas of Florida City, Homestead, um, but can reach as north as Naranja. And we know that our, our members just wanted to have ease of access of information and have cultural music that made them feel a little bit closer to home. Mm. Tell me about the programming. What's the format? 
Yeah, so right now it's a 24-hour radio station. It's all pre-programmed. Uh, we play music the majority of the time, and we sprinkle in um, public service announcements on info like wage theft. Um, and obviously the era, the era of COVID, um, we did a lot of census work, and we publish information on getting out the vote when it's election season. Um, right now we're in heat season, so we have uh, PSAs running on heat illness protection and we're working to develop more long-form content um, led by our members and i mean as we pointed out again because you do it in in different languages how many different languages are you do you have programming so our membership represents upwards of 10 different indigenous languages namely mam ichil Kamjoval, Quiche, Mitseco, and many more, as you named from uh, Mexico and Central America, namely Guatemala. Mm. Speaking of Guatemala, I wanted to ask you about this was, I mean, they have, uh, it has one of the lowest literacy rates in the Western Hemisphere, and and that's particularly low among indigenous communities. What makes Mm -hmm. audio such a powerful tool in this situation? Yeah, I think I heard it, um, you know, even just last week from one of our member leaders, Pedro Marcos, who um, names community radio and and radio at large uh, as essential to the tradition um, of their communities. And so, you know, a lot who migrate here to South Florida are familiar with radio. It's a trusted way to get information. Um, And as you mentioned, uh, you know, issues with um, with both reading and writing and general tech literacy, uh, we find that it's a, a, an easy way to, to have folks plug in and that they can stay plugged in while they're at work, right? That they can play their radio stations as they're in the plant nurseries, as they're in um, the farms, um, playing playing the radio music that pertains to them and information that pertains to them in their everyday lives. You know, because it's, and that's one of the interesting aspects of life here in South Florida when you have all these different immigrant communities. And when people come here, I mean, it, it, different people are in different situations, but you think about the media that they have access to. And not everybody has access to the internet right away. Um, not mm-hmm. everybody has access to uh, television, even. But mm-hmm. radio has always been accessible, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's why it's so important in your community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I and I think you know we're we're on the radio right now. I think uh, listeners um, here understand the the easiness of reach of um, of the radio, and and we know obviously it's a it's a tradition in our communities. All right, I wanted to play a little. We have a little news report uh, from Radio Poder, and this one's in Spanish. But let's take a listen. Todo, todo, todo se pagará. En esta vida se pagará. ¿Has oído la noticia? A partir del 30 de septiembre, el salario mínimo en el estado de la Florida subió a 10 dólares la hora para los trabajadores que no reciben propinas. Acuérdate. All right, so that's uh, uh, just one of the uh, reports on Radio Poder. That one again in Spanish, but as you pointed out, you have many different languages. Do you have any favorite stories or a time when you found out someone was directly impacted by the work that you do? Yeah, I think, you know, we have um, people coming into the community in South Dade, you know, every day, every week. And, um, you know, not everyone associates uh, the organization We Count, which I'm the proud co-executive director of with the community radio. And so they see the signs and they say, oh, Radio Poder, 
um, I know them. I didn't know that it was you guys. Um, and so I remember the first time I heard that I was, you know, my, my heart swelled with pride um, to know that even if uh, our work hadn't quite reached them, you know, the Know Your Rights um, and education that we have at the organization hadn't quite reached them, the radio had. You know, it, I mean, I guess this goes to the fact that mainstream media in English or Spanish has failed to reach these communities, but that's given you the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, to, to your previous question, another another thing that speaks a lot is, you know, we have um, an organizer um, who who is um, indigenous um, and speaks mom. And, you know, she was telling me just a few weeks ago when she was discussing, um, you know, issues with with community members, you know, they they thanked her. They said, you know, wow, that's you. You're speaking in our language, and mom, um, and and you know, we thank you for for that work that you're doing. In your opinion, do you think that mainstream media could do better, or really is it are these these sorts of situations really going to be best filled by independent yeah. groups like yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think mainstream media can do a whole lot better. Um, personally, I'm Miami um, born and raised. I, I'm proud to be from South Florida. And, you know, until I started working at WeCount, I personally didn't know the the robust and, and strong community that is, you know, these indigenous communities in South Dade. And I think, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done just to raise the conscious levels of, you know, every other folk that live in Miami. Um, but I also think, you know, there has to be um, more information. And um, yeah, I, I do think mainstream media does need to do a little bit better. Um, but I think in the meantime, that's why we have Radio Poder. I'm speaking with Claudia Navarro. She is the co-executive director at We Count, which runs Radio Poder. It's an immigrant radio station in Homestead, and it broadcasts in numerous languages, indigenous languages, as she just mentioned a little while ago from Mexico and Central America. We're talking about the station's work in the community and, and the mission that they've been carrying out now for the last five years in South Dane. Um Claudia, Radio Poder includes, uh, as I said, Spanish, indigenous languages. Uh, but what have been the difficulties of making this possible? Or maybe it wasn't so difficult. I don't know. What's What What, what have the challenges been like for you the, these last five years? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're a grassroots community station. And so resources and expanding our reach and just the different ways in which um, we can develop more and more programming, I think, um, you know, we've. We've got a lot of things in store that we're hopefully developing in the pipeline, like an app um, for folks to be able to take the the radio wherever they go, um, you know, plug in for our um, website and and just more uh, developed, robust programming um, for our members, by our members. Tell me about the need in Miami-Dade County, uh, you know, because as you bring up the station and all of a sudden people find it, and realize there's an opportunity. Here's something that's speaking to me. But do we have any idea how many people in this area speak a lot of indigenous languages? Yeah, I would say I think, 
um, as I mentioned, we uh, are, are a grassroots community station. And so we um, it's been difficult to assess how many people we've been able to reach. But, you know, our organization um, has upwards of a thousand members where um, I would say a comfortable estimate is about 45 to 50 percent uh, speak uh, another language uh, that's not Spanish as their first language. And so we know the need um, is, is present. I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, like, what other organizations out here. I know of, like, for example, I think of, like, Lake Worth. They have the Guatemalan Mayan Center. But, mm-hmm. I, I mean, are there enough organizations here in South Florida that help uh, efforts in promoting indigenous languages and helping folks who speak those languages? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, uh, I think the short answer to that is no. Um, but, you know, we've been thankful in the past that that actually helped us develop our radio station as the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Immokalee, Florida. They uh, were crucial in in helping us get our radio license, you know, uh, five plus years ago um, because they saw the need in their community. And, you know, we saw the need here in South Florida. And I think Right now, the the goal is to continue expanding um, our community radio station, knowing that our members' voices, voices of the community, are so essential to be heard. Um, and so we're we're going to keep doing that. All right. First, I want to start by asking you is where you find the music, and again, because you, you you're playing in languages that you're not going to find in a typical store, but where are you getting the music from? Yeah, I would say we um, we purchase and download uh, the music and we uh, thankfully have software that helps shuffle it in. Um, but that's, you know, weekly, monthly work where we're searching for new music um, on a consistent basis to make sure that we're also keeping uh, fresh with the times and also um, shouting out to uh, to the, the, the cultural uh, part of our members past. How much time do you spend, uh, you know, doing, I guess, like talk shows or programs where the community can call in or participate? Yeah. And so um, right now we unfortunately don't have that feature where folks can call in um, and it's not a live radio station. So a lot of the work that we do um, is uh, production and pre-production where we have conversations and interviews um, uh, led by our members and then we edit them and, and post them on the on the radio. I see. Is there anything that you're working towards, though, coming, you know, as, as we move forward? And I'm thinking about, for example, how we're coming up over these next few years on big elections. Is that something that you just spend a lot of time discussing? Because, you know, again, giving information to people uh, and helping them understand the processes. But is that is that something that you're doing or you want to do? Yeah, absolutely. Every um, election season, we um, have adverts on, you know, uh, voting deadlines, you know, and um, where to vote, uh, when to register, all those things. As I mentioned, we've done um, a civic, uh, a civic engagement, like through the census. And so I think it's it's a part of our our continuous effort in, you know, what we consider is political education and leadership development at the organization. Um, we are a nonpartisan organization, so we can't um, necessarily, um, you know, push one candidate or the other, but we can help to turn out the, the South Dade community through those efforts. Are you able to keep people informed as to what's going on, perhaps back at home and in, in some of their home countries? 
Yeah, and I think that's definitely programming that we want to continue developing, um, led by our members who are interested in having those conversations. Um, you know, right now, our our radio station is volunteer run. Uh, you know, we have some staff like myself who um, contribute to it, but that's not um, our predominant role. And so, you know, hopefully we can continue to build uh, robust support um, within the community to, to continue developing that. So five years in, what, what, what are some of the goals, some of the things that you think about over these next five years? Yeah, I think you named uh, one of the one of the dreams of the radio station is to have the ability to have uh, live talk radio where folks can call in during the day. Um, as I mentioned, we want to develop an app so that folks can take it wherever they go, you know, uh, whether they're going back home, whether they can share that apps with their family and friends in other parts of the country. They can access, um, you know, Radio Poder um, on their phones wherever they go and then through our website, right, where, um, again, in the process of, of investing all of that uh, all of those efforts into the radio station all right so the the radio reports always sign off with the same slogan what's the slogan Uh, it is 97.7 fm radio poder la chispa del pueblo all right la chispa del pueblo and that is the the spark of the community tell me the story behind that where did that come from um, yeah, I think everything has been um, consulted from the name to the slogan um, from our membership. It was a, a participatory process. Um, it was before my time. I, I've had the pleasure of being part of We Count um, since March of 2020 at that. Um, and so I've uh, inherited all of these stories about how the community came together and really, really brought the concept of, of the radio station. Well, you know, Claudia, congratulations on, on five years so far. Good luck on uh, the next five years and moving forward. Um, I think radio radio is that one unique, uh, and it's why I've loved it and been in it all my career, and that's over 25 years, uh, because I think it is, of all the mediums, the really most unique and the most intimate. And I think the one that probably has the most power. Voice has that much uh, power over, you know, in, in, within a community. But congratulations on everything you've done. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me today. Definitely. Again, Claudia Navarro, a co-executive director at We Count. It runs Radio Poder, an immigrant radio station in Homestead. Learn more about it. Go to our website, WLRN.org. And by the way, this is, you know, it, stories like this is what we're looking for throughout our community. And if you know of one, you know how you can share it with us? A real easy way is join the Sundial Text Club. Do it now. Just type the word join and send it to 786-677-0767. That's 786-677-0767. We've had a lot of great ideas that were pitched to us by you, the listener, that way. So give it a shot. We really appreciate it. We love connecting with you. Well, still to come. The Summer Shorts Festival celebrating 25 years in Miami. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. A traditional play will take anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes. And it's got to have time to hash out its characters and its story, and usually it's laid out in three acts. 
Well, that's not unless you're watching a short play, of course, where it all gets condensed into a 10-minute scene. And one place to watch plays that that in that manner, in 10 minutes, is at the annual Miami Summer Shorts Festival. That's the brainchild of playwright Susie Westfall. She founded City Theater in 1996, and the company's been putting on summer shorts ever since, with a break, of course, during the pandemic, like many other performing arts. Susie joins us now. Susie, great to have you back. Thanks. It's nice to be back. It's nice to be back in every sense of the word. Absolutely, yes. 25 years of summer shorts. Um, But look, there are people who don't know about it. So what's the first thing you tell them so that they do? Well, the first thing I would say is um, summer shorts is named for the time of year we produce our signature festival, meaning city theater, and shorts, which is a genre of theater that's anywhere between five minutes to maybe 12, 12 or 14 minutes in length, like the entire play. The mm-hmm. play is, is soup to nuts. Uh, it has a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you're really sort of enjoying a full production. And, they, and these are plays. They're not skits. They're not punchlines. There, it's not like a Saturday Night Live skit. It's a real, it's a real full play, and it's just a, it's fun because you've got this whole buffet <laughs> in front of you in the theater <laughs> of comedies and dramas and mini musicals, and just you know sit back, relax, wear your shorts to summer shorts, and enjoy the show. Is it true that you have a a, a feature this year by Lin Manuel Miranda? Yes, we do. We do. It's, well, okay. So, Summer Shorts is this year, because we're back after three years, and it is an anniversary. It's comprised of some plays that look forward and look back. uh, Our, you know, favorite shorts from our history. And 21 Chump Street is one of those. Um... We originally produced it in 2017. It's based on a true story that was recorded by Ira Glass uh, from This American Life. And This American Life then commissioned Lynn to write uh, this mini musical, 21 Chump Street, based on, on on this story. As far as I know, it's the only short that Lynn wrote uh, and he wrote it between In the Heights and Hamilton. Mm. And, yeah. And, and I know, and I remember this, but re- just briefly remind us of the, the, the story, the synopsis of the story. Oh, oh, it's, it's young love and heartbreak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> By the way, what is it? you, you kept saying, you kept saying, so it's 21 chump street, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. All right. Yes. Be, well, because. It's, you know, the, the title character is a, is a wonderful young man, but he falls in love with the wrong girl. And uh, the original story goes in Palm Beach County that this young man uh, was, I don't know, I don't want to, he, he was entrapped. Let's say that he was entrapped by love. And the, the girl he'd fallen for was a 25 year old narc who had come to the school essentially to find out who was 
selling pills and weed. That's actually a lyric in the show. <laughs> and uh, who's selling pills and weed? You have no idea how easy it is to buy pills and weed. But um, he falls for her and she Oh, gosh, I don't want to give all. all uh, no, no. I, I think I think what you've said is a lot, and it's wonderful already. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm already here. Okay, um, it's it's great. It's a wonderful. Uh, there's five songs in it, if you can believe that. That's um, and see, that's the thing I think is really fascinating. Again, is is because as you said, these are not skits; these are plays. But you're you're condensing them into. A short amount of time and that that in of itself is challenging you know uh, this this goes to um you know uh, uh, our own christine diamete spoke with a couple of the actors from mm-hmm. summer shorts and here she, she was talking to tom wall uh he has 11 seasons under his belt uh and he's played 70 different characters over the years you get yes. to play a variety of characters in one night in one two-hour period as opposed to, you know, playing one character in an evening. It's a real challenge, and it's just a joy. What do you learn from watching people like Tom act in that way? Oh, my gosh. It, it is a joy. Um, I really want people to come out and see Summer Shorts for every single reason. But one of those reasons has always been since we started this in 1996. This region, our three-county region, has this remarkable pool of talent and to um to most theater goers who invest in seeing full-length plays you know hither and yon up and down 95 or the turnpike um they see these wonderful actors invested in the one role as tom says uh in a lot of short play festivals Mostly every play is its own entity, meaning every play is directed by one director and has its own cast. And Mm. we never did this at City Theater. We named ourselves City Theater because we want everybody to collaborate. So Tom, who has in fact done summer shorts for years, as has Margo Moreland, they are tasked with being a repertory company which is very, very, very unusual. So what is a repertory company? It's a, in our case, it's an ensemble of eight actors who are going to perform somewhere around four uh, to six different roles over the course of the 10 plays that make up summer shorts. Wow. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Anybody who's done theater, and I I mean, I did a long time ago, uh, you know, there's already enough stress, you know, in the back as you're preparing to come out for your scene and then go back in and out, in and out. And and you're talking about doing different shows. And now you're not just switching costumes. You're you're switching characters. That is a lot of work. Again, I'm talking with playwright Susie Westfall, co-founded the City Theater of Miami in 1996, celebrating 25 years now of its short play festival, The Summer Shorts, back again because after the pandemic. Uh, Learn more about it on our social media, WLRN Sundial. You mentioned Margot. Margot Moreland, uh, a member of the original Summer Shorts since 1996, and again, talking with Christine DiMatte, here's what she said. The beauty of that 10 to 15 minute show is creating a full embodied character in that time, 
with an arc, with a beginning, middle, and end, um, and making them as believable or unbelievable <laughs> um, as, as possible. Susie, where did the idea to do a, a play that usually would take 90 minutes condense it down to 15 minutes? Where did that come from? Well, it, well, first of all, this nobody's cutting anything down to this. These are all original scripts. Mm. And we get their original scripts. There's a, a, you know, the, this short genre. So we get, we deal with like a thousand of these plays a year that get sent in from everywhere. Submissions come to us from our backyard. They come from around the country. They come from our partners in New York, uh, Samuel French. And what our job is uh, in all of that reading are to find the plays that stand out. So, I mean, we have the, the City Theater um, National Contest for Short Playwriting, which is the, really the largest short play writing contest in the country. But it means that you, you, you read a lot of bad scripts. <laughs> and then you, I mean, you just do. We all do. And then you read some really fascinating plays. And putting it all together uh, with with Margaret Ledford, who is artistic director of City Theater, um, and Gladys Ramirez, our general manager, and some other pals, you start sorting through what these scripts are to identify the worlds that we want our audiences to visit the storytelling we want them to hear yeah. the style of of the play you know that that uh it comes out of putting together a core group of directors and the the opportunity has been over all of these years first of all is to educate ourselves as to what these plays are and how nimble and diverse and interesting they can be but to expose our audiences over the, over the course of a couple hours to more theater than they might see over the course of the season, unless they're going, you know, every weekend to shows around, you know, our counties, yeah. which you can do. But um, this is really efficient. <laughs> <laughs> it's really efficient. And what we're hoping this year is it for all of our audiences um, who have missed us that they will come back? And then for all the new people who have moved here, of, of whom there's thousands, you know? And, uh, and they are looking for something to do that's a little bit different. And, and, and if I could briefly, uh, you know, we're out of the, we're back to normal, but I also always warn people we're not out of the pandemic yet. But no. uh, but but is there anything that people should know? I mean, like, uh, do you have any rules that they should know about going protocols, things like that? Yes, um, we are requesting audiences to keep their masks on, and uh, and everybody seems to be going along with that. The reason, as we know is not only do we need to be keeping each other, you know, safe and healthy still, all of us, but our actors, we really have to protect as well. We have uh, Actors' Equity, the professional union, requires all of us in the theater community who are producing to jump through a whole bunch of hoops to keep uh, our actors and crew and our young interns, you know, safe and sound. 
and our theater is very intimate. So we are working really, really hard to, um, to be healthy so that we can do this show. As people know, if they're following any of the theater in New York, you, if somebody gets sick, you've, and you don't have an understudy, you right. have to close the production. Exactly, yeah. And, and I wondered, like, getting back now, what it's been like for, you know, like for in rehearsals and so forth. What has that been like? Oh, it's been a joy. It's just been a complete joy. Um, I mean, our actors, you know, they're thoroughbreds, and they have been so anxious to get in front of audiences again. And they were, we were all so happy to finally even just get in a room together. <laughs> I had the flu, and it was the first time in 25 years. I actually uh, saw first read um, on Zoom myself. Oh, wow. But I was so happy to see everybody, and everybody <laughs> waved at my little screen, and it was okay. There you go. Um, so let's, let, let me finish with this. 25 years. First of all, congratulations. What's the next 25 years of summer shorts in City Theater look like? Well, you know, we had, we used our pandemic very wisely, our great pause. And uh, first of all, I think what we always knew is short plays uh, happen to be city theater's greatest asset. They are portable. They pivot on a dime. We can go anywhere. We did more than 80 readings of short plays during the pandemic for um for the arsht for books and books for ourselves include but including um recognizing the work of our of our contest playwrights so we 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 put a whole uh series together to have those plays and it you know it it reached out so we know we can do this we filmed uh the plays for our school tour our shortcut school tour and Margaret Ledford figured out how to film. Yeah. Um, we filmed at the Arsht, and we reached thousands of kids that way, sort of shorts in a can. Um, we know we have learned so very much over this time. But I think what we, having had all of that experience and experimentation, what we do know, we, we just opened on Saturday, was how emotional and gratifying it was for us to greet our audiences yes. and our audiences to sit back exactly. and just let this wave of entertainment, it's, you it, know, flow it, over them. It's great to have, no, it's great to be back, to have it all back. Absolutely. And again, congratulations on 25 years. Susie, it's such a pleasure. Break leg. Have a great summer. Thank you. Come see it. Abs Come see this show at the Arch. Absolutely. Susie Westfall, co-founder of City Theater Miami, celebrating 25 years of the summer shorts. We'll have more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, that's our program for this Tuesday, June 7th. Coming up tomorrow, uh, this week there was almost chaos at the jury selection process for the Parkland shooter trial. And we're going to learn more about what's going on as they're still trying to get that jury selection, uh, jury selected, I should say. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.